When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, episode 267, an interview with Mikhail Deckel about her latest book, Tehran Children, a Holocaust Refugee Odyssey. Professor DeKal teaches English at City College of New York and the CUNY Graduate Center's Middle East and Middle Eastern American Center. Her previous books are The Universal Jew, Masculinity, Modernity, and the Zionist Movement, and Oedipus in Kishinev. So, Professor DeKal, thank you very much for being with us today. Great to be here. Thank you. Now, uh, in full disclosure, I just wanted to let you know that I've been doing this podcast since 2010. I've been reading about World War II uh, for about four decades now, but I have never come across the story that you cover in your book. So I was very excited about that. And the fact that it was, to a degree, a personal story for you made that all that much more interesting for me. So what I was hoping we could do is maybe give us a quick overview of your book, and then we'll go into some details and capture some of the more fascinating parts of the book. But again, this entire book was just a very emotional experience for me, reading it, and then also experiencing what you were learning through your eyes about your father, about so many things that I think you didn't know before. That's right. Um, so the book is, um, as you said, um, on the one hand, a memoir of my father. My father, um, with whom I obviously spent uh, my childhood and basically the first 18 years of my life, day mm-hmm. in and day out, was um, somewhat enigmatic man. Um, I grew up in Israel. He was... Um, Somewhat um, depressive, a little angry, um, quiet, a little reclusive, and um, I felt that I didn't um, really know him very well. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, so the book started out as a quest to find out about his past, his wartime and pre-war past, but as I as it turns out, the book that it turned out to be is not just about him, right. but really about and, and really about um, most Polish Jews who survived the Holocaust. And you know, this is a very hard hard thing to grasp. But right. um, this these are most of the people, most of the Polish Jews who were alive in 1945 survived in the manner that my father's family did, which is to 
basically flee east into the Soviet Union and undergo a series of deportations and, migra- and migrations that would end up saving them. Um, so the book is um, about tracking down the details of this very complicated and, as you said, unknown story. Mm-hmm. And this is truly unknown. You know, it was even unknown to the Holocaust Museum, wow. um, who actually uh, the Holocaust Museum in Washington are going to be holding a big event for this book in May. Uh, because they actually, even though they have the materials in the archives, they actually haven't really covered this story. So it's a story that pertains to a quarter million survivors that hasn't really been written. Um, And so the story is about the story of these refugees, and it's also the story of my journey and my search in the footsteps of these refugees, including, of course, my father. Right. Okay. And you've and you've anticipated my next question because finding out a little bit more about your father, trying to understand what makes him tick is one thing, but doing 10 years of research and coming out with this book is, is, is obviously quite something else. So what propelled you to pursue this very uh, intense project? Right. Um, so, you know, I begin with the, in the book by uh, talking about a moment in 2007. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm in New York. Uh, I'm, I'm a professor at City College. I'm in a faculty party. And uh, a colleague of mine, an Iranian-American writer, uh, Salar Abdo, says to me, hey, do you know anything about Holocaust refugees who were in Iran during the war? And I say, yes, I do know something. Uh, if you recall, 2007 was um, the years of then Iranian Prime Minister Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, Mm -hmm. who was a Holocaust denier. And there was a lot of talk about Iran's complicity with the Nazis during the war. And Salar, my colleague, read an article in an Iranian paper that said, no, we weren't complicit. In fact, we saved 1,000 Jewish children. So I told Salar, you know, my father was in Tehran, and he asked me, how did he get there? Who brought him? And I really didn't know the answers to that. So that was um that's what propelled it that that's what propelled the, the book initially um and then the story just kept snowballing because there were more and more missing parts uh, that had to be uncovered um i mean if you you read the book and you know that i traveled to many places including russia poland Uzbekistan uh, and my colleague traveled to Iran. And these are not places where you can just go to an archive and get all the information you need. Uh, So it took a long time to unearth everything. And then once it was unearthed, it took a long time to understand it exactly. Um, So this is, this is, um, I would say that the immediate catalyst was that conversation and maybe on a deeper, deeper way, on a deeper way. I mean, I really wanted to kind of go back to my father. I mean, my father died in 93, Mm -hmm. um, which is the same year that I came to the United States to study. And I hadn't really paid a lot of thought to him since then. And, you know, I really was ready, I think, to go back and, and, and touch that painful subject. Right. Okay. So, and you, and you made this point a minute ago. I mean, this is a whole new aspect of the, of covering a certain angle of the Holocaust. But if you had to drill down a little further, what makes the story that you're telling unique among the other works about World War II and the Holocaust in general? That's right. Um, you know, most of the Holocaust stories that we know take place in Nazi-occupied German. I mean, Nazi-occupied Europe, right? right? So mm-hmm. we know we have stories of hiding and stories of rescue and stories of surviving concentration camps, Schindler's List, and so on. This is a story that begins with fleeing 
Nazi-occupied Europe, and then uh, goes on to... So it actually, it's a story, it's about fleeing, and it's a story that takes place outside Europe. I mean, it's a story that takes place in the Soviet Union, in Soviet Central Asia, in Iran, in India, in um, later in Palestine, in Lebanon, in Syria. So this is, it's a, it's a kind of global history of the Holocaust, you could say, um, which really hasn't been um, researched very much. I mean, if you... Um, if you, you you work on or are in very interested in World War II history, and I think you'll know, you know that um, in the past three decades there's been intense, intense Holocaust research mm-hmm. and, and and representation in popular culture and commemoration. But somehow these stories have fallen off the map of that. Uh, so they haven't been told very much. So, uh, and one of the questions is, is that it, the book asks is who is the survivor, right? I mean, these people were not recognized as survivors. They didn't receive reparations initially. So um, this is this is what I think what makes the book uh, unique. And if I can add to that real quick, I think it's maybe like the third or fourth page of your book where you have the map showing your father's journey. And that alone, I mean, I stared at it for like five minutes. It's incredible just the journey. Obviously that he was a very young boy. He had no control over it. It must have been um, horrendous for him, but but we'll get into that. But just the journey that these children made from, uh, from Poland was absolutely incredible. So if we could, if we could kind of go through some of your father's um, experiences and the, and the traveling that he did, I mean, this is incredible for me. So how do you explain to this young man and obviously uh, almost a thousand other children, how did they go from Poland to Iran 5,000 miles away, and yet they're not taking a direct route? It, it certainly goes far to the north and then comes south. If you could just share some of his, uh, his story with us. Right, um, and I should say, uh, you know, to, to begin mm-hmm. this, because you know, I call the book is called uh, Tehran Children: A Holocaust Refugee Odyssey. It really yeah. is an odyssey. Right. Uh, I mean, it's 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 a journey almost that circles almost half the world, yes. and these children. And we have to. The starting point is. I mean, I write about my father, who was thirteen, really twelve, when uh, they fled their hometown in Poland, and his sister was eight. And these children, the sister never left her hometown. My father left his hometown once for a tonsillectomy operation in Orso. So these children who never left home end up taking this tremendous odyssey. This this is how it happens, and it's not just for them, but really for for all the refugees, more or less. Mm. These are people, so 1939... Poland is um, divided, right? We know mm-hmm. that Poland is divided, partitioned between Germany and the Soviet Union after it, its last, the, the last troops of the Polish army fall. Right. Um, so, uh, and in that period, uh, in the begin in uh, September into mid October of 1939, about half a million people, mostly Jew, Polish Jews, but also non-Jews, mm-hmm. uh, flee from Nazi-occupied Poland to Soviet-occupied Poland. And you have to realize that these people are kind of trying to weigh their options. Right. What's worse, right? Yeah. What's worse, Germany or the Soviet Union? They're stuck in the middle. They're not so sure at that point. So they flee into the Soviet Union. By the time Poland is partitioned, a million and a half Polish Jews live on the Soviet side. So mm-hmm. there were three and a half million Polish Jews and 
in, in Poland before the war. A million and a half of them end up on the Soviet side, whether they fled there or their towns just fell under Soviet occupation. Uh, okay. All these people, all this million and a half, about half a million get de- exiled or deported to the Soviet interior, to labor settlements in the Soviet interior. And, and um, there are various reasons why they get exiled. I mean, they're arrested by the NKVD, the, the Soviet secret police, mm-hmm. and they're exiled. Um, there are various reasons, but mostly because simply because the Soviet Union needs more slave laborers to work in, you know, to, to cut down trees that will build its factories and its right. railroads. And these people are exiled. They're exiled into what are called special settlements. So special settlements are not exactly gulags in the mm-hmm. sense that they're not penitary per se, mm-hmm. but they are penitary in the sense, you know, you're taken to, to my father's family was taken to Arkhangelsk, it's in northern uh, Russia, uh, in, you know, minus 50 degrees, weather, wow. uh, cutting down trees for 14 hours a day. And these are, remember, these are urban people. These are people who are yeah. not farmers or have no idea how to do this. They live on very, very small rations. Um, and uh, these are very difficult conditions. About a quarter of the refugees die already there. Uh, and this is according to Soviet estimates. So, mm-hmm. you know, and the number is probably higher. Right. Uh, those, so they're there for about 14 months. After in June 1941, as we know, the Wehrmacht, the Nazi, the German army, invades the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. When it invades the Soviet Union, it basically murders or ghettoizes and then murders all those Jews who escaped initially but stayed near the border, uh, right? Right. Uh, so they were sort of like they, the, the ones that were considered the lucky ones that weren't exiled actually are killed. The ones that, are, that were exiled, like my father's family, on the other hand, are released by amnesty from Stalin with the idea that Polish citizens will be released, will form an army, and will help fight the Germans together with the Allies. So mm-hmm. Polish Jews are include, included in, these, uh, in this amnesty. Uh, and basically, they are released. Most of them are released anyway. Um, so it, it, these people basically are saved by their deportations, right? right? So by, by this bad thing that happened to them, saves them because the Nazi army is, not, is, is uh, stopped before it gets to the Soviet interior. It doesn't get as far east and north as they, they are. Then um, they migrate again to the Soviet Central Asia Republic. This is essentially another exile, another mm-hmm. deportation. I mean, this right. is the Soviet Union, so it's not like you can just say, okay, I'll just right. go wherever I want. Right. Uh, you, they tell you you have a deportation card. It says you have to go to this and this village in Uzbekistan near mm-hmm. Samarkand to stay with this and this Uzbek family, and the Uzbek family has to take you, and you have to go. But at the same time, these are not organized transports, and uh, people sort of just flow into Samarkand, Tashkent, and Kazakhstan, and so on. Um, Mm -hmm. When they get there, if you can believe it, conditions are even worse in the sense that um, it's hot, so there are more diseases. Um, The Soviet Central Asian Republics are the labor front of the... uh, um, the, the the Soviet army. In other words, the idea is that they will feed and dress the Soviet army, and mm-hmm. their food will be confiscated in order to feed the army to fight the Nazis. So, 
more or less the idea is that they will die so the army can 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 live right. uh and of course at the, the refugees are at the bottom of the food chain here because locals know how to hide food and so on but the refugees uh really are in a very bad uh state especially in those years and we're 1942 now and it gets a little bit better later mm-hmm. so when there is a chance to evacuate uh, about a thousand jewish children together with a polish army in exile which is actually being evacuated from the soviet union to iran my grandparents and many other parents jump on this and say take our children uh and basically the idea is the children will be saved right and um and whatever happens to the parents will happen to the parents most polish jews remain in Central Asia for the duration of the war mm-hmm. and sometimes beyond the duration of the war. Uh, and that, that includes my grandparents. Many of them in 1945 are repatriated to Poland and then they leave and then they end up in displaced persons camps and all kinds of, there are all kinds of scenarios. But the, the point is that they, most of them stayed in Central Asia and the mm-hmm. minority, which includes these children, which includes Jewish soldiers in the, in the Polish army in exile, which includes uh, a few other some other adult civilians, for example, four rabbis, and some, uh, and many, and I'm, as I'm finding out, many, many stowaways and people mm-hmm. who pretended to be Catholic and, and um, <laughs> people who had uh, made fictitious marriages to Polish soldiers so they could get out. Um, I mean, it was every desire of every refugee to get out of the Soviet Union. So they go to Iran. Uh, in Iran, these children are collected by uh, Zionist socialist. Um, counselors, some emissaries who come from Palestine, mm-hmm. and eventually they're transferred to Palestine, mandatory Palestine, which at the time under the British um, rule, uh, they're transferred. But if you looked at that map, you saw that it's another crazy journey from Iran to from Tehran to Tel Aviv because um, although Tehran and Tel Aviv are very close, if you are driving mm-hmm. directly. You can drive in 48 hours. The problem was that Iraq was in the middle, and Iraq would not let uh. Jewish children go to Palestine uh, because the Arab, Arab-Jewish conflict there was already um, raging. So they, the Iraqi government would not let these children pass, and, and this is even after Eleanor Roosevelt pleaded with them, and they mm-hmm. said no. Uh, so the children yeah. had to go on a British warship through the 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 um, Indian Ocean, which was you know full of German sea mines, yes. is through the Suez Canal and into Palestine, where they arrived in February 19, 1943. So this is the journey in a in a <laughs> nutshell. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved. You've researched. You've invested all that you can. Now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. 
I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com The number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com That's YahooFinance.com I think if I remember correctly from your book, by the time the journey is over with and they are in um, what is going to become Israel, I mean, yeah, it's like 13,000 miles, if I remember That's correctly. Right. And, That's right. And correct me if I'm wrong, but by the time your father gets to Tehran, he's been separated from his parents because they stayed behind? Is that? That's right. Okay. Yeah. So as I said, most Jewish children were were uh, evacuated without their parents. Their parents were not allowed to join. So yes, my father and his sister were, were uh, and other children, the other children too, were evacuated. I mean, you know, they were put in an orphanage, but really most of them were not orphans. It's just that their parents right. were in the Soviet Union. That's, that's incredible. Um, so, so yeah, and you make the point that Iraq is like, no, you can't come across our territory. I'm not sure if they didn't want to upset um, the Axis or whatever, but was was Iran more willing because they were partly controlled or, or uh, not controlled, but there was a heavy British influence in there, or were they just more open to helping the refugees? I just wanted to try to understand that better. Why? Because nowadays there's a lot of tension with Iran, but back then they were they were doing a wonderful thing, helping helping these children. Yeah, uh, in, you know, the question of Iran, so I was, when I started this, um, I told you that this project began with a conversation with my colleague, and mm-hmm. of course, the first thing I was interested is in is this question of Iran. Did Iran really save my father? Yeah. Uh, and especially given the, the current tensions between Iran and Israel and so on. So, you know, Iran didn't exactly save him, because as you said, Iran by that point was controlled by was under british control so in in again after the um, the german invasion into the soviet union and that whole change anglo soviet forces invaded iran and basically took over but i should say so iran in 1939 was a neutral state right it was a neutral state with German strong German ties, strong ger- economic ties to Germany, mm-hmm. because in the 1920s, it was German engineers who were building Iran. And so those ties did not stop when Hitler came to power. So the, the, the Shah at the time, who, is the, who was the father of the Shah that we later knew, uh, was, um, I wouldn't say he was a Nazi sympathizer, but he certainly had more ties to Germany than to the Allies. In Iran, there were pro-Nazi elements. There were Shiite clerics who were Nazi sympathizers and other elements. At the same time, beginning in the 1930s, with the rise of Hitler, Iran is is letting in uh, refugee, German and Austrian Jewish refugees under certain categories. So mm-hmm. they're saying, hey, you know, these people are um, engineers, they're doctors, they're lawyers, uh, we uh, can put them to work. Right. And, um, and they are pretty generous in their quota as of... Of refugees, so you have it's it's it's. I think you know it's it's a kind of schizophrenic state almost. When yes. you have uh, on the one hand you have Jewish pro-Nazi elements, on the one hand you're letting in Jewish refugees, uh, and I think that's what made you, Iran unique in a way that it was. You know, it was not as implicated as in the Arab 
Jewish conflict. It was um, mm-hmm. very pragmatic right. at, at the end of the day. And um, so when, uh, you know, so it, it does become, um, it does become a better place than most other places in the Middle East anyway, right. in the sense that it's, um, it's doing the pragmatic thing without too much ideology, and on an on an, on an individual level, mm-hmm. there are wonderful stories about um, individuals who are very um, moved by the sight of these children who are who are you know in a severe state of malnutrition and in rags. People see them, they start crying, they right. um, go and buy a, the contents of a candy stall and give them candy and so on. But we have to remember also that these children come as part of a much larger transport of Polish refugees. So they're not singled out as Jewish, mm-hmm. per se. Right. Um, I mean, only later on they're put, they're put in a kind of separate Jewish camp, but they're just part of the, this big transport. And pe- but uh, regular individual Iranians react very um, compassionately mm-hmm. uh, to them. And I, I yeah, think that's special. Yeah, absolutely. I did enjoy that that part of your book because, you know, the government can make whatever policy it wants when roughly a thousand children show up in rags and they're scrawny and you can tell that they're suffering from malnutrition. I, I mean, for, for the locals in Iran and Tehran, their, their heart went out to these kids and, and they took care of them. Uh, could you remind me of roughly how – I'm trying to remember how long your father was in Tehran or was it more just of a stopping point? No, it was about seven months. Okay. All right. Yeah, that's just incredible. I mean, again, he's was he the oldest because he had his, was it his cousin or was it his sister with him? Yeah, he was, so there were three from the family. It was mm-hmm. his sister. So he, by the time they get to Tehran, he's 14. Wow. Yeah. Uh, his sister is 10. And then they have a cousin who was with them. The cousin basically ended up with them because she was on summer vacation with them in their Polish hometown. Uh. So she fled with them. They just they just took her with them when they fled, and while her parents remained in Warsaw, and her her entire family, of course, was killed. Right. So she survived with these children. There was there were, there were the three of them. He was the oldest, and he very much took that role. Of I mean, the the in this story, um, I always tell people this is very much a story of siblings. Yes. And and I do think that. Perhaps it was mandatory that you had a sibling to 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 survive this. So siblings took care of each other in this very, you know, heart wrenching way. I mean, you would have ten year olds taking care of uh, three year olds. Right, and um, and this this book, this story that you tell, and the way that you write it is so nuanced and so layered. I could never even attempt to do it justice. But there is one thing I wanted to ask, just just to try to understand a little bit better. So in one of your previous interviews that I was able to find, um, you said something like, the history of the Tehran children was erased, partly because in the face of the extermination of millions of others, the Tehran children were considered to be the lucky ones. I mean, I, I understand that they're they're considered lucky, because like you said, the, the uh, cousin just happened to be on vacation, and because of that, she's going to go through this ordeal, but she's going to survive. But I, was it guilt, you know, because so many millions of people had died and they survived? I'm just trying to trying to fully understand why the story of the Tehran children has been glossed over or erased or kind of pushed to the side. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Uh, first of all, you know, it, it actually, the, the story of these particular 1,000 children, actually, you know, it is known in Israel. I think it's less known um, outside uh, Israel. Right. Uh, but, but, it, but, what, but even what is known in Israel is only the last leg 
of this journey. In other words, in Israel, so these children, as I said, these children came to, uh, to Palestine in February 1943, and their arrival was this huge thing, and, you know, it's right in the middle of the war. These children are coming from there, um, and they were sort of heralded and celebrated and so on. Um, but uh, what what is known in Israel, the way it's sort of told in Israel, is really is a kind of like rescue story, right? Sort of these stories, these children were rescued from right. Tehran and brought to Palestine. But this is not really the story. It begins much earlier. <laughs> I mean, there are many, yes. many more legs to this that have not been really researched. The, to, the, to the second part of your question, I do think... You know, the, when the, as I said, when these children came, um, there was just an outcry because people still didn't know exactly what was happening in Europe. So, right. in, in fact, when they're coming, when the train is coming in, you have people standing on the sides of the, the, the two sides of the train tracks, and they're screaming at them. They're saying, "Did you see this and this relative? They think these children will bring the news of what is happening wow. in Europe." Yeah. Um, so then, so when they come in, you know, they're considered like these horrible victims and. Uh, and, th- and kids who went through this horrible stuff. But, you know, little by little, within a couple of years, with the magnitude of the European ca- Jewish catastrophe mm-hmm. is revealed. And then, you know, I think given the fact that um, most people perished, you know, the fact that they didn't perish makes them relatively kind of the lucky ones. But, right. you know, as I, as, and, I, and I had grown up with that notion. I mean, I, I, I had this almost a fantasy that my father was sort of evacuated straight from uh, <laughs> Poland to Palestine with right. a little stop in Iran. So I did not understand the extent of the, that this was a kind of prolonged, arduous path of torture and suffering that went on for years. And in fact, in some ways went on in, in Israel too, not in, of course, not to the same extent, but they continued to be separated from their parents. And they only reunited with their mother in 1949. They were, these children were separated from their parents for seven years and they never saw their father again. Yeah. Their father died right after the war. Right. If I could real quick, um, because what you brought up a very, a very poignant moment for me when I started the very last chapter, Hebrew children, when they get to Palestine and there's the British officials there and they get taken over by certain, uh, I think, Zionist organizations that are looking after them. You and I and the people reading the book were like, okay, they're at the, we know that the, that they're at the end of their journey and they're relatively safe compared to what they've come from. But these kids don't know that. They're still in shock. They still don't know where their parents are. They still don't know anything about anything and they're being given to families to look after them. They don't know these people. I mean, it, I mean I'm just imagining a 13,000-mile journey of hell, of fear, of being completely out of control. And you, you make the point in your book, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, when you suffer some kind of traumatic event like that, you know, the science, uh-huh. there we go. The science of that was still, you know, still being worked out, but these kids were living through that and everybody was just kind of expecting to a degree, people were expecting them to go, okay, the journey's over. You're with people that can care about you. So everything's going to be fine now, but they have been to hell and back and it's not over for them yet. I mean, I you said at the beginning of this, your father was taciturn and he was silent. I mean, now that you know his story, it's almost like, yeah, how could he be? How could he be anything else? That's right. That's right. Yes. I mean, you know, these children, as you said, I mean, you said it even better than me. Um, I mean, they get to uh, to Palestine. They're celebrated. Uh, they are 
you know, more or less cared for. I mean, they, yeah. they are cared for uh, in various settings, and they're supposed to get on with their life, right? Exactly. Uh, but in fact, um, the fact that their parents are still... Then it's not only that they're separated from their parents, but their parents are still caught inside the war. Mm-hmm. They know the suffering that they... I mean, they know that their parents are starving while they're getting food. So you right. can imagine so, the kind of conflict that these children live with every yes. day. And not only that, they're getting letters from the Soviet Union. So they're getting letters from the parents, and their parents are saying, save us, help us. Um, send right. us food. Um, so they they live with this. So on the one hand, they are beginning their lives, and they try to, um, you know, it's amazing, their, their willpower. I mean, they study, a lot of them don't know Hebrew when they get there. They study Hebrew. They they start kind of catching up. I mean, they hadn't been to school in four years. They yes. catch up. But on the, on the other hand, they live with this, this guilt and this sadness, and um, the people around them don't really understand that very well. I didn't understand that um, very right. well until I, I read their memoirs and their letters, and I understood how. I mean, one, I read a letter of one child, and he wrote, "Yes, we're safe. What does it mean if if our families or if parents are still stuck over there?" Exactly. Yeah, and you make the very good point in your book about they're eating. They're, they have access to this food. They're getting letters from their from their parents. So even the point of eating to some degree is for them now causing guilt because they know their parents elsewhere don't have food. I mean this this what they go through, not that they have much of a choice, it's just it's just heart wrenching. And I'm I'm purposefully leaving out most of the journey because I want the readers to to really experience that for themselves. But I did want to ask a, another follow up question to something you said a second ago. So when people hear the term Holocaust from World War Two, they think of constant concentration camps. They think of people putting these wire cages held there against the will and all that kind of stuff. But there's another part of that as well. And that's the, the, the story of your father and those 1000 children with him. It's of refugees, all, all these people who are being moved around, who are being kicked out, who are being deported. Yes, it worked out for them. But again, it had to be a harrowing experience. And I just wanted to ask in all of your research that you did, could you maybe share with us some of the moments or, or what really stood out to you when it came to actually focusing on refugees versus people in concentration camps? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and of course, refugees is a, is a very, you know, current topic yes. today. And there, and there and there are similarities. I mean, these are also child refugees separated from their parents. And we we see some of that. We see some of that today. I mean, there are a few things. I mean, my book deals with um, refugee aid, mm-hmm. also aid that was sent from the United States and, and elsewhere to these refugees. And um one of the things that were very both moving and heartbreaking to me mm-hmm. is, uh, on the one hand, the the amount of, uh, especially by Jewish aid orga- aid organizations, uh, the Joint Distribution Committee, and also aid organizations in, in Palestine, the amount of um, what they went through in order to try to save these refugees and to right. get to them, uh, right. because of course you know you couldn't just uh, send something directly to the Soviet Union. It all had to be. It was all very politically complicated, and right. to get aid to the people was. I mean, there were just really heroic efforts to do that. Um, on the other hand, the the question of aid is very problematic because you, when you're following the refugees very closely, you see how little at the end gets to the refugees. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there is so much about 
against profiteering and black market and the politics of refugee aid and so on. So that's something that um, struck me. And in terms of kind of thinking about refugees, another thing that was, you know, it's kind of a simple insight, but at the same time, Mm -hmm. um, to me, it was uh, a kind of revelation was that um, we think about refugees oftentimes as going from point A to point B, uh, you know, escaping from Syria to Germany and whatnot. But along in the, in my story, and I think in the story of refugees today, every point of transit is also an end point for many people. Mm -hmm. So the story of refugees is more about an escape from than an escape to, and people in uh, in my story, I mean, I just told you this whole father, but, you know, there were some people who stayed in Siberia. Even they were in special settlements. Mm-hmm. They were released. And then they said, where are we going to go? We have small children. Maybe somebody said to them, take a cow. You'll be okay. And they said, okay, we'll have something to eat uh, for the rest of the war. We'll stay here. And these people became... Soviet citizens and then Russian citizens, and they became, they, they stayed. Um, people stayed in Uzbekistan. People stayed in Iran. Um, people um, married, young Jewish women married Iranian men and stayed in Iran. Right. Uh, so every, so in, in terms of refugee identity, you know, we tend to think of, of ourselves as, as um, you know, Americans or Israelis. We tend to think of that as a stable identity, but it's, in a way it's very arbitrary. Mm-hmm. And my father could have ended up just you know, a Russian or an Uzbek or uh, an Iranian. Uh, so that's another thing that to me was very startling in a, in a way. Right. I have to ask, and to be honest with you, I'm not even sure how to phrase it, but you have a certain, before you start researching this book, you have a certain perception of your father. You have certain feelings towards your father. 10 years go by, you do a lot of research. You have friends and colleagues that help you. You do a lot of reading. You put this book out. I can only imagine the changes or the, maybe the a better appreciation of which, what, what your father went through by the time this book came out. And after all the work that you had done to make it happen. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I feel so much closer to my father. It's just uh, tragic that he, he's not alive. And mm-hmm. um, my aunt as well, who was very helpful while I was writing the book because she she died six months ago, um, Is I mean, but she also died, she, she died before the book came out, which is very sad for me. But right. the very process of writing this book brought me very close to her. And, and absolutely, I mean, I have so much more empathy towards my father, um, I'm just sad that he had to live with all of this his mm-hmm. whole life and not say a word about it, not really share it. Um, and not only, and not only um, his wartime experiences, but also his pre-war life. It's just kind of a whole chunk of him that he was completely cut off from or at least didn't share it with anybody as far as I know. And he was not the only one. So this was, this is, this was the norm. Um, so, yes, I, I feel more connected to him. I feel more connected to, um, you could say, the Jew- this Jewish past, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand it. I mean, there is something about pursuing a project for so long and living with this material so long that it, it's almost like that past now speaks to me directly. I read a letter written by my grandfather, whom I never knew, right? and I kind of hear his voice almost because I understand how they spoke. I understand who they were, uh, and, that, and that's, a, that's, a, that's a big gift. I also feel, frankly, um, empathy towards other people, not just Jewish victims. I mean, mm-hmm. there are 
Stalin uh, uh, deported 33 million people, you know, Poles, Koreans, ethnic Koreans, and so on. And, and a lot of people have stories of suffering. And a lot of people who helped me, in fact, each one of the people who helped me along the way had their own story. And we had these shared histories that were also, I mean, it was, they were shared, they were also in competition. It was complicated, but nonetheless, um, I, I, I just really, I, I absolutely feel more empathy all around um, on, a, on a more uh, intimate level with my father, but also on, on, on a more broader level. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey... Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Oh, I I, I completely can see that. This is going to sound very strange for people who have not read your book, but when I got to the end, and they were, and your father was, in, along with the other children, they were being evaluated. You know, they get the physical exams, and for lack of a better word, a psychological exams. I mean, he was he was small in stature. He was suffering from malnutrition, and uh, oh my goodness, just and and they were saying that oh they're. They're not very disciplined or they're underdeveloped, you know, emotionally or mentally. And I, and I just wanted to yell at the book. Well, they've went through four years of hell, you know, part of it by themselves and they had no choice. And the whole thing just had to seem like one long nightmare. So by the time I get to the end of the book, I'm ready to fight someone to defend your father. And again, I didn't know the man, but you can just because of your book, you can actually picture what he went through. And it just must have been something that I wouldn't want to talk about either once it was all done. Right. Yeah. Right. You're right. You're absolutely right. And and you're right that um, these evaluations are, you know, it's maddening uh, to see that because, of course, you know, PTSD as a category, the psychological category was mm-hmm. not in the books yet. So in a way, that category was developed after the war, because of war victims, because of these, uh, and uh, so there was no, when these children were evaluated, there was no, um, they didn't take their trauma into account in any way. They they evaluated by these sort of objective measures. They're like, yes, he's intelligent, he's behind in intelligence. Well, he hasn't been in school in three years, right? Right, Um, right. So it's, uh, but it's, but in a way, these, um, what made me feel slightly better about it is that, for the most part, my father was not singled out. So the older boys in particular, a lot of them received these sort of negative evaluation. And I think if you look at evaluations of children in displaced persons camp in Europe mm-hmm. after the war, you see the same thing, that there's a kind of fear of these wild children who are, right. um, you know, living with no... Uh, schooling nor framework went through these horrible things under during the war and are and are just kind of un um unruly in some way and that they need to be trained and so on. It's it, it is very sad. But um at the same time I, I think in the kibbutz where my father ended up, um I mean there were very many difficulties but also again there was a lot of willingness to to try to help these children. Of course without looking at their trauma, but nonetheless, I mean, teachers sat with them day and night to teach them material that they right. had to catch up with and, and, and things like that. So, I mean, there definitely was a, an attempt to help them, and they were not, I can't say that they were neglected, but 
you know, they didn't get what they needed either. I mean, none of them got, of course, any psychological help or, right. or even, you know, a lot of hugging and, and, and emotional care. Right. I, I can't remember exactly when in your book, but you make the, the point, there's, there comes a moment in your father's life, his sister and his cousin, where they're not allowed to be children anymore. They're separated from their parents, even though there's, there's authority figures around, that sometimes those are not nice authority figures, they have to be adults in the, in the respect that they have to be responsible for themselves. No more, no more being a kid, it's time to grow up, this is your life, you do whatever you have to do to survive. And, I, and again, I don't remember where that was at in the book, but that stuck with me. I was like, okay, childhood is over. Yeah, that actually happens very early on. That mm. happens. I mean, as soon as, more or less, as soon as they flee, they um, they're told. Um, in fact, you know, they come from a very wealthy family. They come from uh, one of two wealthiest families in their town, and they wow. grow up in extremely, uh, you know, this extremely guarded uh, environment with lots and lots of relatives. Their family had been in this Polish town for eight generations, mm. um, and they're. And not only them, but a lot of other family members are just used to a certain, you know, they have uh, servants, they have people working for them, and um, they get on these cars and they flee the brewery. Um, I mean, they own a a beer brewery and they flee, they get out, and uh, they have a relative with them, a young woman, and she starts complaining. She says, oh, you know, it's so uncomfortable to sit in this truck. I'm... You know, they're sitting with all their belongings, and my great-grandmother turns to her and she says to her, the war has begun, and basically everything has changed now. This is a new life, mm. and you have to, you know, you, this is not no longer about complaint. And I think that's that's it. I mean, they are, um, at that moment, have to stop complaining and do what they're told to survive. So at that point, they're still with their parents, but nonetheless, it's a kind of different consciousness. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know, um, you know, I don't know if... Uh, if if you have children, you know I have a son, and you know when he's and you know he's he's a, he's sixteen, but he's still a child. You know sure. he wants to he wants me to cook his lunch and so on, and <laughs> and, and that's over. That's over for these right, children as right. soon as, and it's over even for eight year olds. Yeah, that that's incredible. You're absolutely right because. I mean, just to, just to have to snap out of childhood. Nobody wants to do that, but it's certainly being forced upon them. So, so I have to ask, I mean, as far as I remember correctly, you traveled to Russia, to Poland, to Uzbekistan. And I think your colleague went to Iran. Um, and I'm sure because of the language barrier, you must have had hosts, maybe someone to translate for you. Um, do, do you have any memorable experiences traveling all over doing research for your book? Oh yes, absolutely. I mean, the travel was just incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, at the same time, as I, I, I think I said that before. <laughs> I, I've been I've done so many talks and interviews. I can't remember sure. what I said, but uh, um, a lot of the places that I travel to, most of them actually, archives are not readily available. Um, a lot of times, it's hard to get them. People don't exactly talk to you uh, now, especially in, in Uzbekistan, but also in Russia. And Uzbekistan is. And it was even worse. I was there in 2013. It was a totalitarian state. Mm. Uh, you actually, I actually could not travel there as, a, as an independent researcher. So that was too risky. So basically, I traveled there as a regular tourist on a tour of the Silk Road. Right. And I had a clandestine research assistant who was helping me. On the side, <laughs> it was it was crazy, um, and uh, so I, of course I got a wonderful tour of Uzbekistan, which is truly one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. But 
Um, I would say one of the most memorable moments that I had was in Uzbekistan. It was in Samarkand, near Samarkand, in this village that my family had been in. And mm-hmm. that we were actually, my research assistant was actually able to identify exactly where there had been the wow. village and actually the actual spot that they were in. And that spot lived these, this an Uzbek family. And they hosted me, and when I walked in, they said, you know, our, our parents tell us of these refugees who came here, and they're in such bad shape. They were eating live frogs. Um, they couldn't work, and we pray for them. We still pray for them every year, and they showed me kind of where some of them are buried and so on, and then we kind of held this this prayer together. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, I mean, I thought that was, I mean, that was incredibly moving to me. Yeah. Um, that's, you know, you're in the, the the other part of the world with these these people who are basically in a village that doesn't even have electricity. Right. Um, and, they, and, and, of course, uh, in, the Internet is uh, banned in, in Uzbekistan, uh. so they have no, so they, they, their kid has an iPad, but they can't, can't, he has no internet, so basically he just takes photos with iPad, and he's taking <laughs> our photos, and then, wow. you know, they're, pray, they're praying, and I'm sort of praying, you know, do the best that I can, and so on, so that was, and there were many, 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 many memorable moments in, the, in these trips. That that's incredible. I mean, just to have that connection with someone from you know about a moment in the past. That's you're right. That is absolutely incredible. And again, I just want to tell all the listeners that we have left most of the book out because it's something I really don't want to spoil. I mean, it's it's you talking about your father and other people's journey, and I want the readers to go on that same journey. But it is an incredible tale, uh, incredible series of events that everybody has to go through. But before I let you go, I do want to just for a moment, if we can. Step away from history, and um, can, can you give us, in your opinion, what your book can teach us about the plight of refugees today? I mean, you spoke about it a little bit earlier, but again, you, we've got all these refugees for all these in, uh, in, uh, unstable regions in the world, but there's also children among those refugees, and I think sometimes people forget that when maybe they view the refugees har- more harshly than they should. That's right. Uh, I mean, first of all, um, it, it's one of those ironies of history that in my story, the refugees from war-torn Europe are fleeing to the Middle East, and mm-hmm. we tend, you know, and now we are in a, in a situation where the refugees from the Middle East are fleeing to Europe, and sometimes mm-hmm. Europeans forget that they were refugees. So while in in one of those ironies of history while europe was burning uh tehran and tel aviv were actually very relatively peaceful centers of refugees mm-hmm. uh, so that's one thing we need to remember in terms of um i i spoke about refugee aid before and i right. think the one uh can learn from my book things about refugee aid uh in the present and how to do it in in ways and uh, that will help the refugees in terms of the, ch- I mean, I think there are a lot of parallels. Um, in fact, one of the things that made me closer to my father and understanding his situation is exactly seeing these refugee children now who are separated from their parents. And mm-hmm. it's especially heartbreaking to see these stories in the United States of the migrant children who are separated from their parents. And some of those chil- of those stories that came out of the, these different holding places of, of, uh, of, of child refugees in the United States, where you right. these stories of of uh, you know a ten year old sister taking care of her three year old really resonated with the stories that I knew, and I was thinking, you know, we're in America in 2019. Why are you inflicting 
the suffering that these children had during World War II. Uh, and uh, so I do think that um, the separation from parents is really profoundly damaging. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in many ways, in my story, of all of all these horrors, I think that probably the separation from the parents was the most long-lasting trauma mm-hmm. that really haunted people for years and years after after the war as well. So um, I, I do think that it, my story teaches that we need to keep children with parents no matter what, even yeah. under difficult circumstances. And, and and separating children from parents should not be a legitimate. A uh, way of controlling immigration flow. It, it really should be a red line. Uh, absolutely. You said earlier that you have a son. I, I have several children. And yeah, the greatest fear of a child seems to be being separated from what they know, which is their parents. It, it can't get any worse from that. So that should be something that's off limits and hopefully will do better than's been done in the past. But We'll have That's to see right. how that goes. Okay. So, uh, Dr. DeKal, thank you very much for your time. I really do appreciate it. For all my listeners out there, it's Tehran Children, a Holocaust Refugee Odyssey. I recommend it very uh, highly. This is an emotional book, so uh, maybe uh, just know that you're going to go down an emotional roller coaster when you go through this. But the story of your father and those children with him was absolutely incredible. Professor, thank you very much for the book and very much for your time. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure. So again, I wanted to thank Professor Deckel for taking the time to be with us. She actually had to go to work early one day just so she could squeeze us in. But as far as the listeners go, I wanted to make sure that I didn't leave you with the wrong impression. Um, This book is not all doom and gloom. There's very positive things that happen at the end of it, obviously with her father and those other almost 1,000 children that start their journey from Poland. So again, I just wanted to make sure that I balanced it out. It's a very uplifting end as much as it can be for such an incredible story. And if you're interested in related material, you can follow her on Twitter at Deckel McHale. That's D-E-K-E-L-M-I-K-H-A-L. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.